You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected with our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge and our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message. We would love to hear from you. I know that most of you were grieving along with me when, uh, when you found out that the Tour de France wasn't going to be on TV this year. Uh, I like watching the Tour de France. My, my, favorite, my favorite announcers are a couple of old duffers, uh, Paul Sherwin and Phil Liggett. They make me laugh. They have all these old sayings. And one of the things that, that Paul uh, Sherwin often says, uh, he says, you know, they're, they're going through the mountains and they're getting to the, to the, end, of the, the, the end of the tour for the day and they're on the second last hill. And he calls it the penultimate climb, you know. So um, we're in the middle of a series on work, and this is the penultimate week. Next week is the last week of our series. Uh, Aaron will be wrapping it up. So this week I have been tasked with talking about the ethic of our work. I have to say that I took a little bit of license on that, and uh, I don't know if I'll be talking about work ethics, but uh, let's, uh, let's open up God's Word and see what He has to say for us today. Let, before we do that, let's just pray and, uh, and commit our time. Lord, we are looking to You to speak to us from Your Word, and we ask that You would do that through Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This week from the Wall Street Journal, I know you guys love to read the Wall Street Journal, but here it is. I found this fascinating, by the way. Some white-collar workers are secretly balancing two full-time jobs and earning up to $600,000, a report says. Some white-collar workers are taking advantage of remote working by secretly holding down two full-time jobs at the same time and not telling either employer. The Wall Street Journal spoke to six workers who have held multiple full-time jobs. They told the publication that it's a difficult balancing act, but it's worth it for the double salary. Most earned between two hundred dollars and $600,000, the journal reported. It's tricky balancing two jobs, but, uh, you know, you just got to drop in and out of meetings and, uh, and, or avoid them altogether uh, to ensure you're not caught. Right. The journal, uh, the journal verified that the workers, uh, they actually verified that these guys are working two jobs and their claims by uh, offer letters, employment contracts, pay stubs, and corporate emails. The workers said that they used the extra money to pay off student debt, uh, top up their kids' college savings accounts, uh, buy luxury goods ranging from an engagement ring to a sports car. Employment lawyers told the journal that holding two jobs didn't violate federal or state laws, but it could breach, (laughs) unbelievable, could breach the employment contracts and get people fired. Incredible, eh? You could work two jobs as long as you don't get caught, right? It's not illegal. You know, it got me thinking about work and... uh, what kind of motivates people to work. I think, you know, that would maybe represent one extreme. But, you know, I kind of got, you know, as I was thinking through it, I was thinking, what, you know, what is it that motivates people for work? I mean, and I, and I really think it comes down to sort of two things. Two things that motivate us to work. One, 
is the, well, work doesn't really work for me, but it's a means to an end. You know, I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. Uh, work provides me with the means to maintain a standard of living. It helps me to buy the toys, the cottage, or, you know, in some cases, it, it helps me just to live, right? It, you know, it's, it provides me some freedom and allows me what to do what I want, you know? So there's this idea that work, uh, we just work for the money, right? It's not, it's not the work. And then the second thing I think that, w- that we see sort of in our, in our culture is that work uh, is the place of personal fulfillment, uh, the building of self-esteem where job meaning and job satisfaction are really high on the list of, you know, why we're working. And I think as, as Christians, God provides for us a third alternative. And uh, this, this week's, uh, uh, pa- um, I guess, text that we're, uh, that we're looking at is, is uh, Colossians 23, uh, 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And whatever we're doing, including how we conduct ourselves at work and how we conduct ourselves in our daily jobs, we are serving the Lord Christ. The Bible presents to us a life lived in harmony with God's will that reflects the character of God. In other words, our faith, our relationship with God should be expressed in the way that we live in all aspects of our daily lives, including work. The fact that we are working as for the Lord, that we are serving the Lord Christ, it ought to, it ought to mean something to us. Something that takes us beyond just earning money so that we can survive or earning money so that we can have the kind of lifestyle that we want or dare I say it, personal job satisfaction. God calls us to something greater than ourselves. And I'll give you a hint the thing that God calls us to generally inter- involves how we interact with others. Today I want to look at a, a case study from the scriptures. So I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ruth. If you don't know where that is, you'll find that about half a dozen. I think it's the seventh book of the Old Testament. So from the start of your Bible, go seven books in and you'll find the book of Ruth. We're going to take a look a gentleman by the name of Boaz, who was one of the main characters of this story of the book of Ruth, and how he exemplified the principle of reflecting God's character in the context of his workaday world. The first verse of, uh, of Ruth tells us that it says it occurred in the days of the judges. Now, Here's a little biblical trivia for you. Do you know what the theme verse is for the book of Judges? I won't. <laughs> I won't put you on the spot, but here it is. There was no, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me like we're living in the similar world where everybody is doing what is right in, your own, in their own eyes. And in fact, so much so that you can't even say that you think what somebody else is doing is wrong because you would be infringing on their personal freedom. 
<coughs> this is the kind of world that Boaz and the book of Ruth was, was, uh, was written, and this is what was going on. So let me just give you, we're going to fly through some scriptures here, excuse me. <coughs> we're going to fly through some scriptures here. Uh, chapter 1 gives us the context. We're going to focus on chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read a lot of scripture, quite frankly. Reading of scripture is more important than what I got to say. So pay real close attention to what God has to say in his word to us. Uh, chapter 1. In the days, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the, in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Ju Judah. That'd make a great um, tongue twister. Uh, they, went to the, they went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the from the country of Moab, for she had heard that the fields of Moab, in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on that way, uh, on the way to return to the land of Judah. <coughs> so you get the picture here. Guy takes his family to another land, Moab, because there's no food, there's a famine. So they want to make sure, make sure he looks after his family, he takes his family there. Well, he's there in this foreign country, he dies. And then his sons, they marry women, local women, Moabite women. And then they die after about 10 years. So now this lady, she's left with two daughters-in-law, <coughs> no husband, no kids. And so she decides that, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go. I, she hears that there's food. So she says, I'm, I'm going to go back to, 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 you know, to this place I was born. And so as she's leaving, she says to her daughter-in-laws, Listen, you know, it'd be best if you guys just went back to your families. You know, I, I got nothing for you here. You know, it's just better if you just go back to your families. And Orpah, one daughter-in-law, went back to her family. But it says this about Ruth in verse 16, chapter 1. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And so they set off. Naomi says, okay, fine. When she realizes that Ruth's not going to leave her. And so they head, back to, they head back to Israel, to Bethlehem. And it says this in verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I'm just going to read without comment uh, chapter 2. Uh, I think it's a fascinating story, and, uh, and, I, and I, I, I just don't want to summarize it. I'd rather read it. So let's just uh, dive into chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, a man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. So Boaz is a relative of her late husband, just so we get the, the reference there. <clears throat> and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, who, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the, the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you, were uh, when you were thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz said, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has fully been told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said to him, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed the young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an epath. Uh, ephath of barley. So that's about two-thirds of a bushel for modern uh, equivalency. And she took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said, where did you glean today? <clears throat> and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished the harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. I'd love to read to the end of the, the, the book. It's a, it's a wonderful story, has a wonderful ending. 
Um, so that's your homework for this week, okay? Go home, read the entire book of Ruth. It'll take you about 10 minutes, maybe a little bit longer if you're a slow reader. Um, I need to move quickly, but I want to give you three thoughts from this passage, okay? Number one, God cares about ordinary people. Number two, God is looking for faithful servants. And number three, God accomplishes his story or history through the obedience of his people, okay? So God cares about ordinary people. Ruth is a book and it's a story about very ordinary people facing very ordinary events. Leon Morris, the well-known Australian um, commentator, has this to say, the book of Ruth deals with unimportant people and unimportant matters, but it deals with it in such a way as to show that God is active in the affairs of men, that he works his purposes out and blesses them that trust him. God uses ordinary people to reach other ordinary people. Today, God is placing people in your path, people you rub shoulders with, people that you work alongside of. He's bringing those people into your life. Just look at the path that Ruth takes here under the providential hand of God. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, And she arose, that's Naomi, with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard that in the, fields, uh, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. I can't tell you how many times God has moved in my life and in the lives of other people. Just first they hear something, right? She's out in the fields and she hears there's food in Israel. God's visited people. There's no more famine. It's gone. Verse 22, it says, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Chapter 2, verse 3, And so she, Ruth, set out to glean in the field of the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Chapter 2, verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. You know, that's probably just a coincidence, right? I mean, really? You know, not so fast, my friend. <laughs> Nobody who reads the book of Ruth says, wow, they were lucky. <laughs> what good fortune, what a nice bit of whimsical happenstance. It's lovely. You know, nobody says that. Everyone who reads this story sees the clear providential hand of God on Naomi and on Ruth and on Boaz. Even Naomi saw it and recognized it and said in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. She's saying, look, the Lord hasn't forgotten us. Even though my, even though my husband and my sons died, God has not forgotten us. One of the things I love about the scriptures is that we get a bird's eye view of it. You know, you just imagine from, you know, sometimes it's good to step back and say, I wonder what it looked like from their perspective. I mean, you know, everything's lost. Kids are, you know, her sons are dead or her husband's dead. Off they go, you know, and they, you know, and they're just kind of, you can just see them walking down, you know, beaten, right? Because she even says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because my life is bitter. And they get there 
But God's hand is providentially there. And when you pull, the, when you pull that lens back and you can see what God is doing, you can see the beginning from the end. You can see the clear hand of, of God in their lives. And, you know, here's the point. God is orchestrating the events of your life and those that you work with for his glory. And he's doing it in ways that aren't necessarily immediately apparent to us. And it's why it's so important as as followers of Jesus that we live lives that consistently reflect the character of God because the person sitting beside you at work, God placed them there. The person standing behind you or, or behind the counter with you at the shop, God put them there. You know, I remember having a, uh, working at a, in, in, a, in a company, I was in industrial sales at the time, and God put a woman in my, in my office. There were, I, had, I had an office by myself, and, and I had to share an office with a woman. I remember just having a conversation with her, and I remember her saying something along the lines of, you know, just kind of, you know, we're just trying to kind of work on our Christ consciousness. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, so I asked her, what does that mean? And she said, well, we're just trying to figure out this whole sort of Jesus thing. And, and, you know, and how do we kind of, you know, how, how does he sort of interact with our lives? And God gave me an opportunity to share the gospel with her and her husband. And God saved both of them. And that was only because I was, you know, watching out for it watching out for what God might be doing. This is why our lives have to be an expression of our relationship with the Lord, that everything we do has to flow out of that. Because you, you, you just never know what God is doing in the lives of those around you. And that kind of brings us to our next point, and that is that God is looking for faithful servants. I want to give you just a few things that I noticed about Boaz, about his character, about how he lived, how he interacted in the context of his day-to-day job, if you will. The first thing I noticed about it was that he was overt about his relationship with God. I'm going to take a little literary license here. I, I kind of imagined it this way that, you know, if you just kind of imagine Boaz going to work, you know, and he's, and he's kind of humbling to himself, probably singing a hymn or something, you know, I don't know, the old rugged cross or something to himself. You know, little bounce in his step. And he gets to the field and to the people who are working with him and for him. And what's the first thing that's out of his mouth? He says, the Lord be with you. He acknowledges God before the people he works with. Trust me when I say this. God has enough secret service followers out there, okay? And what I mean by that is there's lots of people who say nothing about their faith when they're working on the job. And here's what I know from experience. What I know is this, that when you share your Christian faith, you let people know that you're a follower of Jesus, you may, in fact, suffer a little bit of ridicule for that, but it'll also open up conversations that would never happen 
if people don't know. The second thing I want you to notice about Boaz is that he was observant and practical. It says, then Boaz says to the young man who was in his charge of the reapers, whose young woman is that? You know, I, um, as most of you know, I like cycling. Uh, I enjoy it. But sometimes I get really focused on like five feet in front of me. And I forget to look around. And I, I'll catch myself. You know, I'll be way out in the, you know, out in the country. I mean, on, I, southern Ontario is beautiful. You only have to go a couple kilometers outside of Cambridge. Beautiful rolling green hills, farmland, and, you know, all kinds of beauty out there. And, but, you know, and I'll be like, right along on my bike, right? And I'll say, okay, Colin, stop. Look, or look around. You know, we can be so focused on our own career, we can be so focused on our own lives that we miss what's going on around us. And we need to look up and we need to see what, what is actually happening in the lives of the people that we come in contact with. The, the, we need to see what's happening w- in the lives of people who are in our field of vision. The interesting thing is that Boaz doesn't just kind of go, oh, oh nice, nice, cool. Right. He does something about it. He recognizes that there's a need. He rolls up the sleeves of his tunic, I guess, and he gets involved in a practical manner. Boaz heard that she was a widow, and he knew that she would have a need for food. This was a, you know, this was not a a, a culture that was friendly to widows and to to um, orphans. So he knew she had a need. And he was able to meet it in such a gracious and gentle manner. Look at the way he, he, he talks to her. He says, my daughter, you, you stay here in this field. You work alongside of my people. I'll ensure that you're protected. And if you're thirsty, you just help yourself to one of the water jugs. And Ruth is overcome by his kindness. You see... Why, why, are, why are you being so kind to me? Why? I, I'm a foreigner. And he speaks kindly to her. You know, I, 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 we have friends out in, in, in BC, and it just, this just came to me. It just reminded me that my wife was talking with her friend the other night, and, and they just moved, and she, he, the, the husband is... is He's quite, a, he's quite a, a vocal guy about his faith. And they live next to a guy who's, who's kind of down on his luck. And he says, hey, come on, let's go, let's, go for, for, let's go for lunch. And the guy's like, well, why would you, you want to have lunch with me? And you know, shame that we live in a world where when people are kind, <laughs> people are just automatically suspicious, you know? But it's up for us to be kind and, and, and not only kind, he, he actually prays for her. He says to her, the Lord repay you for what you've done and, and, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You know, I, 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 I probably shared this before, but I just think it's worth sharing 
You know, one of the most meaningful testimonies I uh, listened to in, uh, at a baptism, you know, people share their faith and, and then are baptized. And one of the things that this, this particular lady was sharing that she worked with this, this other Christian lady and who just said, you know, can I pray for you? Can I, you know, can I pray for you? How can I help you? How can I support you? And, and she just, and that kindness, that praying for her, that eventually led to her saying, I want that for my life. I want to be that kind of person. I want to have that relationship with Christ. You know, Ruth responds and says, you know, I found favor in your eyes. You've comforted me. You've spoken kindly to me. Even though I, even though I, do, I have no association with you, I don't work for you. You know, how do your coworkers talk about you? What do they say about you? You know, I would like to think that they don't say, wow, that person's grumpy. You know, that person's kind of miserable. That, you know, I, 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 I think we of all people should be people of joy on the job. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. The next thing I notice about Boaz is that he took obeying the word of God seriously. You see, God had instructed his people, never over-harvest your field. Okay? Don't go back and extract every last kernel of, of wheat or grain they were to leave the corners of their fields un, unharvested. They were to uh, leave, you know, what fell off the wagon, so to speak, for the widow and for the foreigner. You know, Boaz could have chased Ruth off. He could have just said to her, you know what, get out of here, you bum. We don't need your kind here. But he doesn't. He's obedient, he understands what God's word says, and he's obedient to it. Later on in the, in the story, sorry, spoiler alert, Boaz marries Ruth so that Naomi can have an heir to her land. It was a law that God had decreed in ancient Israel so that the widow, the widow would not die childless, and that no family would lose their family name or their family land because of the death of a husband. It's called the law of the Leverite marriage. Look it up. <laughs> I can't go into all of it right now. But the, the, the reality is, is that what Boaz did when he married Ruth was to produce an offspring that would be accredited to Elimelech. So in other words, the son that they had was, in a sense, Elimelech's offspring. If we're to have the impact for God in our work, we, we have to understand what God's Word says. And we have to be willing to obey it. We have to be willing to, to follow through with it. When God says, you know, be kind, we're kind. When God says, give, we give. When God says, you know, uh, be my witnesses. We're his witnesses. We do things in obedience to what he says in his word. So in order to be in obedient to the word, you have to understand what it says. 
And I hope you're in the Word of God. I hope you're, that's a daily practice for you, that you understand what God says and that you have a willingness to obey it. Uh, the last thing that I would share about uh, Boaz's character, and, I, and, and there's so much more here that, that we could share. I just picked out a few things that, that sort of came, came to mind. But that Boaz was a man of faith. And you're like, what? How, how do you get that? Well, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed the young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And then, you know, pull out some, of the, some from the bundles. Right? So even as you are gathering up my harvest, I want you to take some and I want you just to kind of, you know, maybe just drop it on the floor there, you know, so that she can, she can come along and find it, right? So it's really easy for her. You see, if you're giving away food at the harvest, you need to trust God is going to meet your needs. Because he didn't know if he was going to have enough for, for him or those people that he was providing for. He didn't know how the harvest was going to end up or what his final tally would be, but he was prepared even before he knew that to make provision for somebody else. And faith that God will meet your needs is the basis for generosity. Knowing that everything that we have comes from God, that he's the one who meets our needs, that will free us up to be generous with others. You know, there's so much more here, but I, I you know, I got to move on and, and finish. So we have, um, you know, God cares about ordinary people. God is looking for uh, humble servants. I can't remember exactly what I said there. Um, and the final thing is that God accomplishes his story or history through the obedience of his people. You know, and as I said, spo- you know, spoiler alert, Boaz eventually marries Ruth. Two ordinary people involved in ordinary events, but God is active in the middle of their lives. Did you know that Boaz and Ruth are King David's great-grandparents? And if you were to trace Boaz and Ruth's lineage, if you were to follow their family tree down through the years, you would eventually come to the birth of Jesus unimportant people, unimportant matters, God active in the affairs of men, working out his purposes and blessing them that trust him. God is accomplishing his story through the obedience of faithful people. You know, folks, we, 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 you, you have no idea what God could be doing through your life in your interactions with people that you come in contact with. What do you think he could be doing? Without a doubt, God is bringing people into your life and across your path. And he could be presenting you with an opportunity to eternally and irrevocably change the direction of someone's life. I mean, it begs the question, are you prepared to be used by him? Are you prepared to serve the Lord Christ? You know, I don't know what your attitude is about work, where you fall on the spectrum, you know, are you working, do you work to live or do you live to work, I guess? I don't know where you are in the spectrum. But it would be a shame 
It would be a shame if anyone was disqualified because of a bad theology for work. That we would see our work as not being an extension of our faith. If we would see our work as not being instrumental in God's work in the world. God is God. He can do whatever he wants. For us to be involved in in what he's doing, that's a privilege and a joy. When you see people responding to the gospel, when you see when 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 you're able to to serve people, that that brings joy, right? As I said at the beginning, it's you know, it, the hint is that following God really has a lot to do with how we interact with other people. Boaz was a guy who committed himself to uh, following the Lord and being obedient and faithful to him. And look what God did through him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, uh, for your word. We thank you for what you teach us. Lord, help us to be modern day Boazes in our jobs. That we would see others as placed there by you Lord, would you use us in ways that we can't even imagine, or that we might not even see this this side of eternity. Would you use us for your glory, for your uh, grace? We pray this in Jesus' name.